to reject Jesus as the Messiah and as their Savior. So in John 10, Jesus is using a teaching method that he used very frequently to try and help them understand these truths and receive him as Savior. What Jesus is doing is he's comparing a common object or a common situation to spiritual truth. And this is a very effective teaching method. Uh, And obviously, if Jesus is using it, it's very effective. Because the idea is when he could tie biblical truth to a common object or a common experience, people would hopefully remember that truth when they saw the object or experienced the situation and the context in which Jesus was speaking. And it's a great teaching tool. You know, we learn a whole lot by way of analogies, don't we? I mean, just think about some of the things that we learn and we communicate uh, by using analogies. Let me give you a couple of examples here. You guys will be very familiar with these. Life is like a box of chocolates. Why? Because you never know what you're going to get. Thank you, Forrest Gump, all right? You know, we, we're getting it. I hope I get a box of chocolate, you know, on Tuesday this week. What about sharp as a tack? What does that mean? Somebody's really skinny or they have a pointy head? When you call somebody sharp as a tack, and you've seen, maybe you've thought that, but that's not, we're, we're, they're smart, they're intelligent. Well, the list goes on and on, and I collected some from staff and from various sources this week. See if you're familiar with these. Have you ever been told that something is as useful as a screen door on a submarine? Yeah, yeah, you, you, you've heard that. How about this one? Someone's head or a substance is hard as a... Rock. Parents, you've said that to your kids. I know. I've said it before. What about black as coal? Cold as ice? Ever been told that someone that you've met is maybe as phony as a $6 bill? Maybe not, but that's one that I heard this week. Did any of you last night sleep like a baby? If you took your glasses off or your contacts out, maybe you would refer to yourself as blind as a bat. Okay. What about sly as a, or strong as a, Dr. Seuss up here today, Ron, we we got it going on. We we use a whole lot of animal analogies, uh, and and Jesus, you know, used some of those as well. What about this? Ever heard someone referred to as smooth like butter? Got that one? Or what about you sports center uh, fans out here, as cool as the other side of the pillow? I'd never thought about that until I heard it on sports center and went, you know what? It is pretty cool when you flip that pillow over at night. What about calling someone, you are the wind beneath my wings. Oh, so sweet. Ever been told that your directions or your instructions about something were as clear as mud? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I didn't do a good job. Let me try that. And we communicate some less than nice things by way of analogies, too. What about this one? He's as sharp as a bowling ball. Yeah, not too pleasant. He's one brick short of a load, not playing with a full deck. What about you ever tell someone or or heard of someone he lies like a rug? Or someone you've referenced as, hopefully you've not been referenced as, but but heard someone called as dumb as a, I've heard box of rocks this week, a, a box of hammers, a stump, and a doorknob, all right? So there, there was a long list for what people are as dumb as. And I won't say any names, but don't you love people who mix these things together? That they, they kind of mix analogies. I heard someone one time say, he's as smart as a tack. And I thought, 
is that a compliment or not? Because attack isn't smart at all. It's an inanimate object, you know. Sharp as attack I get. Smart as attack, I don't know that that was a positive thing to say. Uh, I've heard this one before too. You're the breath beneath my wings. (laughs) Fly bird. (laughs) She's got legs like a table. No lie, I heard that. I was like, I don't even want to know, all right? And this may be my all-time new favorite. There's a monkey weighing on my head. I think that's a mixture of three things. The monkey on the back, weight on my shoulders, and a lot on my mind. There's a monkey weighing on my head. So, you know, these analogies, we use and we learn a lot by way of analogies. And that's what's happening in John chapter 10. Jesus is discussing the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep, trying to communicate the truth to the Pharisees that they're bad shepherds. They're not caring for the sheep of Israel like they should be, but he is the good shepherd who came to love and care and lead the people of Israel. But the Pharisees still weren't getting the message. I mean, for Jesus, it's like talking to a door. See how these analogies work? They're just not getting it. So in the first six verses, Jesus had spoken about following the sheep, hearing his voice. They didn't get it. So in verse 7, Jesus tries a different comparison. He says, truly, truly, again, these two words drawing attention to what's about to be said. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is great stuff that Jesus is teaching here. He uses the analogy, I am the door of the sheep. Now, we hear that, and we probably don't get overly excited because, honestly, our mind goes to a door like this. We think about Jesus saying, I'm the door, and we picture this right here because this is our experience. This is what we know of doors. And last week, I talked about a gatekeeper who keeps the corral, the pen. They bring, you know, several flocks of sheep in. He opens, he lets them in, he closes the gate. The gatekeeper stays there while the shepherd does his stuff, and the shepherd comes and calls them out. So we have this picture of the door in our mind, and we go, okay, Jesus is the door, all this kind of stuff. No, 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 no. It is much more significant and meaningful than that picture, that idea of a door. Jesus is comparing himself to a good shepherd. And here's what good shepherds did. They would move their flocks of sheep from pasture to pasture in order to find fresh, good food for them. And they moved them from place to place for a number of reasons. One being the fact that there weren't a plethora of uh, green, healthy, lush fields in ancient uh, Middle East. All right, So there weren't a whole lot of uh, fields around. So they had to go to wherever the grass was growing in order to feed their sheep. Well, a second reason they went uh, is because they didn't want the sheep to eat all of the grass in a single pasture. 
Because here's what sheep will do in their little sheep brains. If you don't show restraint and move them and pull them back, they will eat all of the grass all the way down, thereby destroying the entire field. There will be no food in the future because they want to fill their bellies right then and right there. Now, there's a whole lesson in that. You know, think about the future, you know, not just the present, but that, that's a whole nother sermon. So here is what the shepherds are doing. They're moving their sheep from pasture to pasture. And sometimes they had to take their sheep a long way away from the city and a long way away from people in order to find enough food for them to eat. And here's the awesome part about this. You can see I kind of set up here uh, this morning a little miniature sheep pen or corral. Got the big rocks here. Kind of This will be a, a you know, pretty normal size. And when they would come to a big pasture, a large field, they would have a little temporary pen or corral like this where the shepherd would let the sheep come in and stay. And they would stay sometimes for several days at this one pasture, eating in different areas, different sections before they moved on to another place. And because they were away from home, they would often spend a couple of days, even nights, at this location. And so on the nights that they would come to this pen, there was no gate or door here. You can see this has kind of got an entryway in, but there's nothing to block the way. That's because on the nights that they would come and they would stay overnight at this pasture, the good shepherd would lay down between the rocks and he would sleep all night between the stones And with that shepherd, between his sheep and the pasture or whatever lay out there, those sheep were protected. They were safe. Because the sheep couldn't step over him. Have you ever, they've got little short stubby legs, all right, that that they couldn't step over. And they can't run and jump, you know, to be able to get over him. So he was all the barrier that they needed to be able to stay protected. And then for him to arise in the morning and allow the sheep, because what did Jesus say? I'm the door. He who comes in will be saved, that is, protected by the good shepherd as the door. And then he will go in and out to graze in the pasture. The shepherd would let them basically graze freely. They could go eat, they could go drink, they could take a nap, they could stay in the shade, whatever they wanted to do under his watchful eye. He didn't leave them and abandon them. He just watched what they were doing and let them move about freely. Now listen to Jesus' words again. I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I hope that you never again, as you hear these words and think of this analogy, think of that kind of door, but that you remember Jesus, the good shepherd, himself being our protection, being the door by which we enter into his provision and his blessing in our lives. With that picture of Jesus being the door, let's now talk about the spiritual truth. That this is the real life. This is what took place. This is the analogy. People say, yeah, I understand what Jesus is saying with this. What does it mean for people in the spiritual realm. A couple of things. First, Jesus said, I am the door. 
He is the gateway. He is the entrance. Jesus is the way we go through. What does a door do? A door lets you move from one place into another. So Jesus is the way to. Well, what, is it, what are we trying to get to? To God. If we want to know God, if we want to have a relationship with Him, if we want to experience God's presence, if we want God's power, if we want to know God's peace, if we seek God's guidance for choices and decision and God's direction in our lives and situations that we face and we encounter, we can only experience those things through a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why he said, I am the door. And you know, we live in an age that is, that, that's fine with saying Jesus is a door to God. Because many believe, well, he's a door, and there are many other doors. Jesus is a door to God. Allah is a door to God. You know, Buddha is a door to God. You can follow the way of Mormonism, and that's a path or a doorway that will lead you to God, as will Hinduism. And the list could go on and on of all these things that will lead you to God. They're okay with saying Jesus is a door. But the problem with that philosophy and that ideology is that's not what Jesus said. Jesus has issue with the fact of us saying there are many doors or there are many paths to heaven. In verse 9, when Jesus says the phrase, by me, that is emphatic in that language. And what that means is this. Jesus basically said that this way. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, that's the emphasis in that sentence. If anyone enters by me, Jesus says, then he will be saved. Then he will go in and out and find pasture. And some people will hear that and go, well, that's a pretty weak argument. You know, you you say that sentence and Jesus was saying by me, but we weren't there to hear it. How do we know for sure that Jesus emphasized and said by me? And so we say that's a pretty weak argument to say that those two words are the entire doctrine we build that Jesus is the only door to get to God. Well, listen to what else Jesus had to say, which leaves absolutely positively no room for misinterpretation on this issue. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And those words come with the definite article, the. It's there where Jesus didn't say, I'm a way, a truth, a life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he adds, no one comes to the Father except through me. Those are Jesus' words. So the question is, what are we going to do with Jesus' words here? How are we going to handle these things? I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. C.S. Lewis says one of three things is possible with these words of Jesus. Either Jesus was a liar, meaning he knew that there were other ways, there were other possibilities for us to have a relationship with God. He knew it, and he still claimed he was the only way. And if you're going to say that Jesus was lying about this verse, then what else might Jesus have lied about? Can you call someone a good moral teacher that you follow and you give your life for who lies like a rug? Remember, we we mentioned earlier. So C.S. Lewis said you can call him a liar, but who wants to follow a liar who knows he's not speaking the truth? He says maybe Jesus thought he was the way, but he was really delusional. He was a fry short of a Happy Meal, or his elevator didn't go all the way to the top. He thought these things, but it wasn't true. And C.S. Lewis says you can think of him as a liar or a lunatic who just didn't know any better. Or the third option is 
God's word is true. Jesus' words are true. And you need to respond to him as the Lord of your life because of the truth that he taught. So what about you today? Is he a liar, a lunatic, or is he the Lord who is speaking the truth that for us to know God, to have a relationship with him, we had to come through Jesus Christ? You see, the question we must ask and answer is, is God's word true? You know, I get it that this isn't a popular truth. It's not a politically correct viewpoint to hold in today's many, many roads lead to heaven. Uh, you know, it's, it's pluralistic. What's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me in this culture. I get it that people don't like to hear this exclusive claim that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I get that. But is God's word true? Are these words of Jesus true? If they are, we must respond in obedience to these truths, regardless of how we or other people might feel about those truths. Well, it just feels harsh. It just feels condemning. It just feels narrow-minded. If it's true, it's true. You know, and I, I know that the answer is sin. I mean, I'm going to ask a question, and I know the answer is sin. But I sometimes wonder why people kick and scream so hard over this issue of God establishing that there's one way to have a relationship with him. And that way is through his son, Jesus Christ. I, I, I really, it boggles my mind sometimes to think about the reaction to this. Because we as people, particularly in our nation, we understand standards and guidelines and expectations and requirements to do a whole lot of things. And you know what? We don't bellyache, we don't fuss, we don't complain about many of them. How many of you have a driver's license? All right, many of you. Now, this process has probably changed over time, but did you follow a process and did you meet requirements that someone else established in order to get your driver's license? Yes, you did. You probably did this. You probably went and took a written test, didn't you? And you passed that test and you got your permit, and then you had to spend some time, whether it's weeks, months, whatever the case may be, with an uh, experienced driver riding with you trying to coach you in how to drive. And their prayer life probably got a lot better. It increased when they were riding with you, and you, you terrified them. I, I remember those days, you know, my mom screaming and the, you know, the claw marks and the, the door handle and all that. So they rode along with you, and then finally you got to the point where you went with a trained, approved instructor, and they rode along, and they graded you, and they watched you, and then they passed off that you had done well enough for you to go and get that little piece of plastic, that driver's license. Does that sound familiar to most of you in some way? I do. Have, I just got to stop right. Call timeout, and I got to ask you guys: When you were taking your written test here in Virginia, was part of the understanding for you that slower traffic stays to the right on multi-lane highways? I, I've lived in three states now, and the other places that's law, or at least a common courtesy and expectation. But y'all don't play by those rules here in Virginia. I've come up on lines of six or eight cars in, in, you know, running in the left lane with the middle and right lanes wide open, and nobody's moving. I'm like, well, all right. See you boys later. What, what is going on here? You know, I, I've never seen anything, and it's not the least bit frustrating just, you know, to, to, to say. Now, I was on my way to a pastoral emergency when that happened, I, I'm, I'm sure, but I just— I, I, 
Just don't know how they teach you guys that stuff here in Virginia. All right, I had another point. What were we doing? Okay. Here is the point of this. Do you know of anyone who felt that the process to get their driver's license was too restrictive? That our government was too closed-minded? That they were unloving or they were uncompromising in their expectations to get a driver's license and they were so mad about it that they didn't get a driver's license? I just can't stand what they're going to make me do. I'm just not going to do it. And not only did they not do it, do they then start, you know, ad campaigns and blogs and maligning people's character in the media who got a driver's license about how bad and horrible and awful they are because they went and got their driver's license? I don't know of any people who responded that way. Do you? I mean, I just, I don't know of those persons. We do a lot of things and follow requirements and expectations to, to achieve something. We do it to get a college degree. You go and you do what's required to get the degree. You get accredited in your field, and you keep that accreditation by whatever classes or whatever training things you have to do. We follow these guidelines and expectations. Yet the creator of the universe says, here's my expectation. Here's my requirement for having a relationship with me, and people hate it. And they rebel, and they say, how can he be loving? He's not loving. He's not caring. He's not merciful. He's not compassionate because he's narrow-minded and says, you got to come to him through his son. What is it about this? Again, I know it's our sin nature, but it's so illogical. And the crazy part of it is this. It's simple. It's easy. Because God did all of the work. You don't have to take a test. You don't have to fill out paperwork. You don't have to pay any fees. You don't have to go to any classes or training seminars. We believe that Jesus died for us and we invite him into our lives. It's so easy that a child can do it. And we're told to have a childlike faith. Jesus says, unless you have faith like a child, you can't come to me. You can't receive me as Savior and experience all that I've promised. God did all the work. You know, he said, here's my expectation. Live according to my word and my, my laws and my rules that govern you. Things that we're supposed to do, things that we're not supposed to do. Start with the Ten Commandments. Go to the Sermon on the Mount. God says, you want to live right with me? Do these things. Well, we missed it. We didn't do these things. God said, that's okay. You, you, didn't, you didn't do it. Then admit it. Admit that you couldn't do it on your own. You blew it. You sinned. You disobeyed me. Admit that. Turn away from it and then believe that Jesus came and he died in your place. Believe that he paid the penalty for your sin. Invite him into your life. He'll forgive you of your sins. He'll give you the gift of eternal life. And then turn your life over to him and give him control. That's what God asks us to do. And yet so many people refuse to accept God's gift of salvation on his terms. But Jesus said, I am the door. So that's the first thing that Jesus teaches, that we come to God through him. But as we come through that door, he promises uh, several things for us as we received his gift of salvation. He promises to provide for us. And what does Jesus say he'll provide? The first thing he promises is salvation. He says he will be saved. 
And some people don't like to use the term saved anymore. They talk about it's old, you know, uh, religious language, and it just doesn't, you know, resonate well in today's culture. Well, here's my take on that. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me, all right? That this idea of being saved, and it means that we're saved. We are rescued from the consequences, the penalty of our sin, which is ultimately separation and eternal punishment from God because of our sin. So we're saved and rescued, and Jesus uses this word to tell us that he, as the good shepherd, being the door, allows a way for us to be saved spiritually. The good shepherd provides for us spiritually. But not only are we saved, Jesus says, he says, we will go in and out and find pasture. That reminds us that the good shepherd not only provides for our spiritual needs, but also for our daily needs. Remember I told you that when the shepherd's here at this, uh, this pen far away, that the sheep kind of wander in and out, they move freely. That's because they're at a plentiful pasture. Because the good shepherd led them to a place of abundance, a place of peace, and a place of rest. And so Jesus promises his provision, his blessing for those who believe in him, who receive him, and then who follow him. Understand that, believe in him, receive him, and then follow him as the good shepherd. He has promised that he will provide for us both spiritually and for our daily needs. You know, this picture of the shepherd is one of the most familiar uh, analogies and pictures all through Scripture. And centuries earlier, another shepherd by the name of David, you remember him, David, King David, the shepherd? He wrote some words that spoke about some of the most fam- familiar, famous words in all of Scripture centuries earlier that looked ahead to the one who would come and be the good shepherd of his people. And listen to what he wrote in the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. And Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And what does the shepherd do? I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Jesus, the good shepherd, said, good pastures. Water, the shepherd provides. But spiritually, Again, centuries earlier, David says, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Beautiful words that parallel Jesus' promise that the sheep who heard His voice and followed Him would be provided for and experience His blessing. And then Jesus gives one final comparison here to highlight the work of the Pharisees compared to the work that he, as the good shepherd, came to do in the lives of the people who followed him. He says, the thief, in verse 10, the thief. And this is a generic term for anyone other than the shepherd of the sheep. If you weren't the shepherd and you did anything to or or took anything from the sheep, you were a thief, okay? So it's a generic term. And a lot of people, when you hear them reference this verse, uh, they will say it's a reference to Satan, well, I mean, that, that's okay in a sense because Satan is ultimately the one who inspired bad shepherds, the Pharisees, to abuse and mislead God's people. But Jesus here is directly applying it to the Pharisees, not to Satan, saying you as uh, bad shepherds are thieves. And what do these thieves come to do? He says they come to only to steal, that is take what isn't his, to kill, which means end life or to murder or literally here to slaughter. To, 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 name, to, to needlessly 
kill and slaughter the sheep. And finally, he says to destroy. And this conveys the idea of getting rid of something or ruining it or causing it to no longer be effective or beneficial. And you know this word destroy is used at another place in another very important verse when we think about coming to Christ and what the Good Shepherd provides for us. Back in John 3.16, Jesus said this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. That word perish is the same word here in John 10.10 for destroy. Whoever believes in him shall not perish. They won't be destroyed, but they will what? But have eternal life. That's the promise the good shepherd brings. He says the thief comes to do these things. And then he says, but in contrast to the theft and the death and the destruction the thief brings, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. This word abundantly is spectacular. It is awesome. I want you to listen to a couple of definitions and then an alternate translation, which give us a rich, full picture of this abundant life that Jesus brings. The word means present in large quantities. Present in large quantities. Basically, Jesus brings the Sam's Club version, right? I mean, why go buy a bar of soap when you can get 50, all right, and save two cents in doing it, all right? So, you know, in present in large quantities is what this word means. It means plentiful. It means far beyond what is necessary. And one translation says it this way, I have come that they may live completely and wonderfully this picture of Jesus providing abundant life. That's the abundant life we experience as we hear his voice and then we follow him. Abundant provision spiritually and for our daily needs. You know, this analogy has so many truths and applications, but today's is very simple and it's very clear. Come to God through the door he has provided. Jesus, the good shepherd, and he will save you and abundantly provide for you. That's what Jesus says. Come to God through Jesus, the good shepherd. He will save you. He will provide for you. And I want to end this morning by sharing with you how the good shepherd provided for one of the most godly, prayer, and faith-filled men in the history of Christianity. And then I'm going to simply invite you today, if you don't know the Good Shepherd, to come and give your life to Him. But also to invite you, if you have given your life to the Good Shepherd, but you're not walking in the fullness and obedience to His Word and His command, I want to invite you to come and more fully surrender yourself to Him so that you can experience that full and abundant life that He's promised. If you want to be blown away by an example of faith, and prayer, and God's power to provide in a person's life. Read and get the works of and the story about George Mueller. George Mueller is a man who lived in the 1800s, <clears throat> excuse me, and his most identifying characteristic or trait was he was a man of great prayer and great faith who saw miracle after miracle in his life of obedience and service to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Mueller and his wife, again, living in the 1800s, they had a number of orphanages where they cared for, for orphans, uh, and they cared for over 10,000 orphans in their lifetime <clears throat> and in their ministry. Excuse me. In addition to that, they also built 117 schools that allowed over 120,000 children to get a Christian education. Again, many of those children being orphans who wouldn't have had the opportunity apart from their ministry. And get this. Let this sink in. 10,000 orphans, 117 schools, 120,000 children through those schools. He never asked a single person for a dime of financial support and he never went in debt. Never asked for a dime of financial support, and he never went in debt. What he did do was pray and trust God to provide. And let me share with you a couple of stories. One of the most famous is that he sat down in an orphanage one day at breakfast with the children sitting around the table, and they prayed and they thanked God for the food they were going to have for breakfast with no food on the table and no food in the house. And as they finished praying, there was a knock at the door. And the baker had been moved in his heart by the Holy Spirit of God to come and say, I've got bread. Can you guys use this bread? And at the same time, the milkman was approaching the orphanage and said, you know what? My cart just broke down and I don't want this milk to ruin. Can you guys use the milk if I bring it over here and give it to you? Are you kidding me? You're thanking God for breakfast that's not there. And when you finish, there's a knock at the door and breakfast is provided. On another account, Dr. A.T. Pearson writes, and this is his story. He said he was at the orphanage one night visiting with Mueller. And after the kids were in bed, he said, will you come and pray with me? And they went to pray. And he said, we're going to pray for breakfast tomorrow because there's no food in the house. We have nothing to eat. Well, Dr. Pearson said he panicked thinking, what are we going to do? It's late. The stores are closed. There's nothing we can go and do. And he said he was so distracted he could barely pray. But Mueller prayed and said, God, we trust you. We know you're going to provide. So they went to bed. When they woke up the next morning, there was enough food on their doorstep to feed the kids in that orphanage for a month. Not just breakfast, but for a month. And here's what happened. Later, a man named Simon Short told what happened that night. There was a wealthy benefactor who said, don't tell this story until after I'm dead, but then you can share what God did in my life. That night as they prayed, this benefactor was awakened in the middle of the night and said, God very clearly said, send breakfast to the Mueller orphanage. And this individual wanted to obey the Lord's command and knew this was serious. They said, I'm not just going to send breakfast. I'm going to send enough food to make sure they eat for a while because I never want God to say I wasn't obedient to this command. So they sent food for a month. Last story about the good shepherd providing. And all this is well documented. I'm not making you go and research this stuff for yourself. You'll be blown away. Mueller was on his way across the Atlantic Ocean on a steamship on his way to Quebec for a speaking engagement. The captain had slowed down because there was a very heavy fog and they didn't obviously have the, the equipment technology we have today to see other vessels and, and to guide them and all that. So he was going very slow navigating the fog. Mueller winds up in the bridge and says, Captain, I need to be in Quebec by Saturday. The captain's like, okay, we're traveling this speed. We have this many miles to go. Yeah, that's just not going to happen, Mr. Mueller. And he said, I've never missed a speaking engagement in 57 years. God wants me to be there. We'll be there. And the captain was like... Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. So Mueller said, sir, is there a place that we can go pray? And the captain, telling his own story, thought he was a little loony to want to go and pray. But he said, okay, let's go down below. There's a chart room. There's a map room down here. We can go and we can pray. 
And he said he went down and they prayed. And he said Mueller prayed a prayer that in his mind was very simplistic. He said it was almost a childish prayer. And he said it went something along these lines. Lord, if it's consistent with your will, please remove this fog in five minutes. You know the engagement you have for me on Saturday. I believe it is your will. Amen. That was it. The captain said he started to pray, and Mueller said, nope, don't want you to pray. He said, you don't believe God will do it. And secondly, I believe God has already done it. So there's no need whatsoever for you to pray. And the captain's like, he is off his rocker. But he said they left that room and went back upstairs. When he got to the bridge, the fog was gone. It was gone. And guess where they were on Saturday? They were in Quebec. And that captain said his life was forever changed by that man's faith, by his prayers, and by seeing the provision of the good shepherd. The good shepherd will save you and will provide for you. If you don't know him, then I invite you to come at this time and talk to one of our pastors. We'd love to introduce you. And if you do know him, but you're not walking in obedience, you're not experiencing the fullness of his provision, then today, surrender yourself more completely to him. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly.